0: If you're visiting our church this morning, I did meet meet some, uh, some visitors, welcome. We preach expositionally here, so by expositionally we mean we go through the Bible line by line. It is the Lord's church, it's His truth, we make sure we want to feed His people on His truth, and not just pick out our favorite passages, or me just speaking pontificate on my favorite topics. And so that means as you preach through the Bible, you're going to hit passages that they are difficult. And that's a good thing. We need to be challenged. Like Matt said this morning, we become complacent. And so we need to be challenged. And the question this morning, then, is why do we place such a high emphasis on teaching sound doctrine? From time to time we'll hear People say, we focus too much on doctrine, doctrine divides people, and right now, certainly our nation is very divided, our states are divided, and you're probably, even here in our little bubble of Kern County, you're starting to see those divisions, of political divisions. People, you used to not know that you had any differences of opinion with or becoming more vocal about those opinions. And so there's going to be a call probably for people to downplay doctrine, to downplay truth, to downplay what you believe. That we ought to just be, find things to be unified around. And certainly as Christians we're unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. But I assure you that our culture, when it calls for unity, what they mean is you get rid of your ideas and take on our ideas and then we'll have unity. And you know as Christians you cannot do that. You wouldn't be a Christian. You might be a Christian in name only, but you wouldn't be truly a follower of Christ unless you adhered to the teachings of Christ found in the Word of God. Some may even call for some kind of unity around the name of Jesus, which we would all say, Amen. We say at this church, we're all about Jesus, and that acronym, ALL, stands for we adore Jesus by learning from Jesus so that we can live in love like Jesus you've got to learn from Jesus to know how to live or love like Jesus. Some of you are saying that's one too many L's. It's okay. It's okay. They both work. But when you dig a little deeper and hear about people wanting to unify around Jesus, you may find out that their Jesus isn't the Jesus of the Bible you know. They've created their own version of Jesus. In fact, there was a group in the, in the 70s called the Jesus Seminar made up of liberal scholars who voted on the words of Jesus in the Bible, which ones were actually authentically Jesus' words and which ones were inserted into the Bible. And they really had no scholarly or academic method for determining this. They would just vote with marbles, and a red marble, because if you have a red-letter Bible like I do, the words of Jesus are in red letters, so a red marble was Jesus absolutely said these words, and then um, white marbles were like maybe, and black marbles were absolutely not, and by the time they were done, there was only like 17 verses left in all the Bible that had red marbles. Yeah, you could say these people lost their marbles, right? (laughs) And this was touted in the popular press and in TV shows in 60 Minutes and 2020 and all those kinds of shows that look, even Christianity admits. Say no, that's not Christianity. That was a very narrow slice of very liberal theologians. And of course all of the types of verses they got rid of and gave black marbles to were anything when Jesus talked of judgment. Because it's offensive to many people's sensibilities that God would judge. Of course, they were judging when they decided that. We all judge. We all discriminate. Discriminating is only deciding between two different things. Now, discrimination in the racism sense is bad, but we all have to be discriminating. We all have to discriminate ideas. And so the question is, what do you use as your method for discriminating between ideas? And as Christians, we say the truth has been revealed to us. This is where we get our ideas and our truth from. That Jesus Christ is truth incarnate, And he taught the truth. He is the truth. He is the way and the life. And that his followers, especially those who teach in an official capacity, can only teach what has been given to us to teach. And not to teach it begrudgingly like, well, that's what it says. To embrace it and accept it, knowing that the God who taught it and revealed it is a perfect God who is good and holy and merciful and loving. So this week, as I was was prepping this sermon, I'm like, ooh, this is a tough passage. I had unity on the mind. And let me read to you the passage in full so you could see my dilemma this week. Starting with verse 41 in Luke chapter 12, Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And if you weren't here last week, the, the parable before was about people getting ready for their master to return from a wedding feast, from a long trip, and that you don't know the day he's going to return, so you need to be ready knowing He could pop in any moment, and you need to be found faithful to do the things the Master has called you to do. And in this context, it's to be faithful to teach the Word of God, to make disciples. And if you're found faithful, then there will be a great reward. A great reward. Not reward in the salvific sense. That is the re- That is what you get for believing the gospel, for putting your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But specifically, if you're found faithful to be doing the things God has called us as Christians to do, namely to go and make disciples of all nations, then there will be a great reward. And so, Peter, I think, knowing Peter the way we know him, was concerned that someone besides him was going to get rewarded. (laughs) I don't know that for sure, and any time I don't know the meaning of a passage for sure, I want to be clear, and you should be clear to others as well when you're teaching them. I don't know what the intentions of Peter's heart was, but I do know other passages teach me that Peter was not shy about wanting to be the first in the kingdom, wanting to sit on the right hand of God, and uh, uh, of the Lord, and um, wasn't too concerned about where all the other apostles were going to be sitting. So at this point in his life, this sounds like a wait a minute, Lord, well, I, you're teaching to the whole crowd like they're all going to get rewarded? And so Jesus doesn't answer Peter explicitly but goes on to teach some more parables. And this is what he says. And the Lord said, "'Who then is the faithful and sensible steward "'whom his master will put in charge of his servants "'to give them their rations at the proper time? "'Blessed is that slave whom his master finds "'so doing when he comes. "'Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge "'of all of his possessions.'" But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming, begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and eat and drink and get drunk, the master, of that slave, will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Talk about division. I got a bigger laugh at first service, so... Good, you're awake. Okay. So, people who are concerned that Jesus is all about unity and not about division is talking about cutting up an unfaithful steward into pieces and assigning him a place with the unbelievers. Talk about division again. There is a place assigned for unbelievers, so there must be a place assigned for believers, and they're not the same place. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes, but the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more." I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Now here came my big dilemma. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, and mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he was also saying to crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, ah, a shower's coming. And so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it will be a hot day and it turns out that way you hypocrites you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky but why do you not analyze this present time and why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right for while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate on your way there make an effort to settle with him so that he may not drag you before the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. Let me remind you that Jesus taught in parables not to make truth more clear, but to hide it from people who aren't interested in knowing the truth. And this is a very confusing set of parables. In fact, in fact, We might say if somebody taught this way today, we would say, stay on topic, stick to your outline. We went from a master and a slave to the weather to a parable about going before the judge. And then something in there about families being divided. And so how do we fit all of this together? And I was... Trying to break up the passage into smaller chunks because you don't see the connectedness. But indeed, they're connected, and you know they are because it's all in one teaching, it's all in one setting. And so, I was asking the Lord this week for extra help, and I got to tell you how excited I was in the way the extra help came. I mean, we understand the doctrine of God's providence, that he's working in our lives providentially, that he so arranges things in our life so that the very things that he wants to be accomplished are accomplished, and we teach it and believe it. And like Matt Sheridan was saying this morning, gee, if we really believed such things, wouldn't that change the way that we live our Christian life? If we really believe, when it says in James, that anyone who wants wisdom, if you would just ask, without doubt, God will give wisdom. And boy, did God give me wisdom in a pretty amazing way. Last Sunday, now that I'm feeling healthier, I'm able to wrap up my sermons on time. It's not an excuse, it's just, you know, I was sick and it was hard to get in the pulpit and just had enough energy to just give the sermon. And it's hard to stay on, on topic. And so, woohoo! yeah, I'm excited to get out of here on time as well. I would go home and I'd say I blew it again this week. I, I would just beat myself up all week when I went long man, I blew it again. That's rude to my Sunday school teachers. It's rude to people who were told that the service time is from here to here. You know, they've made plans. I want to be a faithful steward. So, just because I'm teaching God's Word doesn't give me the right to just keep talking. And you should know when you're working with other people and you're teaching, you're making disciples, that those things matter to them. You don't want... There to be a distraction away from the truth you're trying to teach them. So I'm out having donuts. Well, I don't eat the donuts because of my my uh, food allergies. I was around the donuts, <laughs> and uh, I got to visit with some people between services, which is a wonderful thing. That's where I should be out there. Amen. And uh, one of the members asked me a question about Jehovah's. Jehovah Witnesses, and why is it that they believe that Jesus isn't the Son of God, but that he's an angel? And I said, you know, I don't know JW doctrine through and through, so I will look that up for you this week if I have some time, and so this week, you know I teach a math class here at Heritage Oak School, that was my profession before I answered the call, to the pastorate, so I enjoy teaching math, they had a test this week, and you need something to do while they're taking their test, I said, I'm going to look up that question on the JWs, now, where can I get a resource about the JWs, well, all this work we've been doing in the last year to put together a theological library, I know exactly the shelf of the Colts, it's down at the, the bottom, near the floor, should probably be even closer to the trash bin, but I know right where it is, and I got a book on JWs and went and started reading, and the passage that I'm preaching from today was pointed out in that book that that is the key passage JWs use to justify their authority in teaching something that is completely different than what Orthodox Christianity has taught for the last 2,000 years. Thank you, Lord, for helping me understand that this passage is all about true teachers versus false teachers. This passage is all about the importance of sound doctrine. And you say, well, that's a no-brainer. We already believe that around here. But I was reminded how quickly in our fallenness, Will we stray from sound doctrine? All false doctrine has to originate from somewhere. And it all goes back to Genesis 3. Satan, the king of false doctrine, tempting man and woman to jettison true doctrine and replacing it with doctrine or ideas that's a little more palatable. You won't die, will you? God won't judge you and so it turns out that the jw's were started by c.t russell charles taze russell up in new york he was born in 1852 and around that time up in new york lots of false teaching was originating the enlightenment had really grabbed hold of academia The idea of the Enlightenment was that man's pure reason and rationalism could arrive at truth on his own. He doesn't need biblical revelation. That the fall didn't taint man's reason. That it tainted other parts of our being but not our reason. The Bible clearly teaches that we need truth revealed to us. C.T. Russell was raised in a Presbyterian Reformed church. Probably taught the same doctrines you and I believe. Later, his family changed churches to a congregational church, still Reformed theology, just a different polity. So instead of uh, the Presbyterian hierarchy of eldership, the congregational church, more congregational rule Congregation voting on more issues. Same doctrine, though. And he became disturbed and distressed about certain doctrines. And I'll let you know what what they were. And you'll probably kind of nod your head and say, Boy, those are the ones that do trouble people. The first one was the doctrine of eternal punishment in hell. He could not come to grips with a loving God punishing people in that way. And so, he pitted God's love over and against God's holiness and justice. And he only saw him as a God of love. Now, that's a lot of passages you're going to have to overlook about judgment and punishment including the one we just read. He also had a problem with the Trinity because he was a young, intelligent, rational thinker, and how could any rational human being believe that God could be three persons but one God? And the mistake they end up making is they hear three gods, one God. It's three persons, one God. And because the creator is different than the creature, there can be things about God that don't make sense to us on a human level because we just don't see three persons being one. And don't try formulas like, well, I'm a dad and I'm a father and I'm a husband. That's, that's one person, three roles. That's a really big heresy that the church fought. That's called modalism. In any kind of formula we try to come up with that models the Trinity from a human level is going to fall short. And so we accept by faith that the Bible teaches God is three persons but one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This sounded very unsophisticated and irrational and unscientific to young Charles, And that led him to his third problem, which was that the Bible in general just sounded very unscientific and unsophisticated. And so, how do you reconcile these things? Well, Adventism was becoming very big in New York at the time. Not the way we see the SDA church now. In its earlier days the Adventists, uh, many were coming to Unitarian-type thought. And it finally kind of split, and you've got some Trinitarian Adventists today, um, but a a wing of the Adventist church had gone Unitarian. Unitarian meaning there's only one, one God, just God the Father. But the Adventist church has also had problems with the doctrine of eternal punishment and they came up with an idea called annihilationism. Annihilationism, when you die, believers, they go to heaven but unbelievers, the way they're judged is that they're just destroyed. Body and soul is destroyed. You're annihilated. You just fade to black, cease to exist. And this Appealed to C.T. Russell's sensibilities. Now that sounds more loving to me. And it may sound more loving to you as well. But the point is that we don't sa- stand in judgment over God. Whatever He has revealed in His Word is what is truth. Otherwise, we could all just say, well, I don't like that doctrine or my opinion. I feel like this would be right. And and then we'd all be creating a God in our own image. The doctrine of eternal punishment is horrific. But it tells us that God is an infinite holy God and sinning against an infinite holy God requires an, an infinite punishment. So, Annihilationism and the aspect of Unitarianism really appealed to Charles. But what kind of put him over the edge was this idea that you could scientifically determine in the Bible the exact date of Christ's return. And that is definitely a teaching of the Adventist church. Now, they had predicted a date, um, One of the prophetesses of the Adventist movement was told in visions the exact date of Christ's return and how you can find out in your Bible exactly what that date is. And the day came and went, and Christ didn't return. And to this day, they dub that the Great Disappointment. You think? And so they reformulated and tried another date, and that one was also a great disappointment. But then they backtracked and they said, you know what? It turns out he did come back spiritually, spiritually, not bodily. And so that is a key doctrine of the Jehovah Witness Church. So. Jesus is a spirit being, an angelic being who did return and is here, enlightening the minds of the true believers. And you say, well, wait a minute, that kind of sounds like Christianity, but that's the role of the Holy Spirit. And doesn't all false doctrine sound a little bit like true doctrine? But how deceptive to. Teach people that only certain people can know the truth. And Jesus came back in spirit form and he's going around telling the true believers the right thing to believe. And it's something separate than what the Bible, as we know it, teaches. Now, no one's going to fall for that for very long because that's just your opinion and every cult starts with somebody having a vision from God. Think about all the cults. There had to be somebody who God appeared to and said, hey, all that stuff in the Bible it's either been corrupted or people have misinterpreted. Here's the truth. Well, I'm not falling for that because anybody could say that. And so Charles Russell became convinced that our Bibles were corrupted and he started the Watchtower Society and they wrote their own Bible called the New World Translation. It's a really horrible translation of the Greek and the Hebrew. And yet JWs today are indoctrinated by, um, you can only use the New World Translation and all other translations are corrupted and they're from the devil. Well, that's going to be hard to get them to listen to the truth if they can't even use a a good translation. They have to meet many times a week to be indoctrinated. They're only given certain verses in the Bible, and they're never in context. So you know you can rip a verse out of the Bible and make it say just about anything you want it to say, and we're careful not to do that. And they're also told that you have to read the Watchtower magazine, which is the official publication of the Watchtower Society in Brooklyn, where the true enlightened people are being told directly by God how to interpret the Bible so you'll often see with the JW that they put more faith in their watchtower magazine than they do in God's Word. All that to say, ironically, the very passage that warns us against false teachers is used by a group of false teachers to justify their false teaching. How demonic. But thank you, Lord, for... Helping me understand the meaning of this passage. Once you understand and look at the passage through the lens of Jesus telling the crowd, do not listen to these false teachers. They will be under a stricter judgment for luring people away from the truth. And he's also admonishing the true teachers to stay the course. To stay the course. To keep teaching what is true and there will be great reward for being faithful to teaching truth and great punishment to turning from the truth. Apostasy. So now let's think about the the passages we just heard under that lens. or Through that lens. So number one, every faithful Christian teacher slash discipler will be rewarded. Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants? Notice Jesus keeps using this master-slave language to remind you, I'm the master, you're the slave, you do what I tell you to do. It's fallen human nature when you start teaching other people to just teach them whatever you want to teach them, whatever you believe, whatever your pet ideas are, Anytime you get a crowd of people listening to you, that's the temptation. The faithful steward gives them their rations at the proper time. Rations, that's a metaphor for teaching. What are you supposed to feed the other servants? What the master has given you to feed them. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. Because this is what it means to be trusted by God as a faithful steward. To feed his sheep with the proper food. And be doing it when he returns. Secondly, then, every apostate teacher will be punished, especially those who persecute. Every apostate teacher will be punished, and we know that the apostate teachers of Jesus' day persecuted all of the apostles. How many times we see in the book of Acts the apostles getting beaten and thrown in jail and flogged, and they will be under a stricter condemnation. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, to to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Notice that the apostate teacher gets assigned a place with other unbelievers. You are an unbeliever if you are an apostate teacher. Wherever unbelievers are going to be is a different place than where believers are going to be. And those who are apostate teachers will get a stricter punishment in that place where unbelievers will be punished. And so Jesus clearly teaches here that there are different levels of punishment where unbelievers are he doesn't go into exactly what that looks like so we would reject dante's inferno and all the different levels of of hell yet we would affirm that this teaches that there are different levels of punishment in fact what is the new testament Say as a warning to teachers, not many should teach because you will incur a stricter judgment. Now, that doesn't mean don't teach. We need Sunday school teachers. We need teachers at HOS. God has said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded, so that warning, though, is for those who teach really, like in an official capacity as an elder or a pastor. But we should all be careful of what we're teaching, for sure. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will, did not get ready, did not prepare the rations the right way. So you don't teach off the cuff. you prepare. You get ready. If you don't do that, you'll receive many lashes, but the one who did not know it, yeah, you know, ooh, ignorance is bliss. So if I, if I didn't know what I was supposed to teach, then I won't be in trouble when Jesus gets back and I'm not teaching it. No, it says that one will still be flogged, but it won't be as severe a punishment And those who knew what they were supposed to teach and didn't teach the truth. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And I would say C.T. Russell had been given much. He grew up in churches with sound doctrine. And he chose to reject that doctrine because it didn't sit well with his idea of love or his idea of what is sophisticated. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. Therefore, then, we could say at this point, you need to be careful who you are being taught by and be careful what you are teaching to others. Make sure it's straight out of the Bible with the proper method of interpretation. You can have your Bible open and use a different method of interpretation and get your Bible to say just about anything you want it to say. But if you stick to a proper hermeneutic, which is a fancy word for interpretation, then we're all going to land right around the same place doctrinally. Yes, there's some secondary doctrines that, you know, do we do we baptize infants or do we not baptize infants? Look, it might be enough to break up Baptists from Presbyterians, but we can fellowship around the gospel because we all believe that in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. Right? The solas of the Reformation. But when people begin to say, well, it's faith plus works, we're done. When people say, Jesus is not the Son of God, we say, we're done. When people say, that he didn't rise from the dead bodily, we're done. That's a big one, that divides. When, when they say God is one and not the Trinitarian God that the Bible reveals, then we break fellowship. Not in a way that's pugnacious. It should be with humility. It should be with humility. Christ clearly teaches then he's going to divide believers and unbelievers. And apostate teachers are unbelievers. I've come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo. And how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. And around Christmas time when we quote the angels saying, Glory to God in the highest and on peace goodwill towards men, the actual translation from the Hebrew is, and on peace to whom God's favor rests. And whom are the one that God's favor rests upon? Those who receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's who he's made peace with. It's not a general peace. Otherwise, we've had anything but peace for the last 2,000 years. Jesus coming to cast fire upon the earth. What does fire represent? Purification and judgment. Purification and judgment. But first, I need to undergo a baptism. I thought he was already baptized at this point. No, he's talking about the baptism of his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. He's distressed, I think, for two reasons. One, because it's going to be horrific having the sins of the world on himself on the cross and having the Father turn his back from him as he pours out his wrath on his own son. But also in distress because there's so much false teaching right now in Israel. But when he is resurrected, people will know, people will know who has the truth. People will know without a doubt who has the truth. So he's Distressed about having to go to the cross, but he's anxious to get there because he knows the good that's going to come from it afterwards. Every person is divided into one of these two categories there's there's believers and there's unbelievers, folks. There's nothing in between, there's no fence sitters. Agnosticism isn't going to fly. Well, I don't know. I'm not so sure. Make up your mind. Today is the day of salvation. Why wait? That's what he's going to end up saying. That's the parable about going to the judge. Why wait to stand before the judge? You know you're guilty, and you know it's an unpayable debt. Don't think that you're going to be able to stand before the judge and negotiate. Settle your debts before you get to the judge. And praise the Lord, he has made a way for us to settle our debt. He says, I'll settle it for you. I will pay your unpayable debt. My son will pay it on the cross. So settle up before you stand before the judge. Like, apparently back then, predicting the weather was popular as it is today. Everybody's a weatherman. Everybody has their system for figuring out. When I first came up to Tehachapi, we could not figure out the weather around here. We still can't. But it doesn't stop people from trying. And they had their methods back then too. And and Jesus is like, look, there are some things we know for sure when you've been around here long enough that you know the weather's about to turn. When the wind comes from the wrong direction around here, watch out. We've got the prevailing wind hits one side of our house which is absolutely ruined right you've got that side of your house that you just can't keep painted and then all of a sudden you'll come out one morning and the wind will be coming from the the opposite direction and you're like well that means something those santa Annas are blowing and so they they had their predictable weather patterns as well and jesus is just using that as a parable to say look You'll prepare for temporary storms by paying attention to the signs. Look at the spiritual signs all around you. Judgment is coming. And are you going to be ready for the storms? And he switches over to that judicial metaphor. So there's a method to Jesus' madness. It's not madness at all. Again, he's obscuring truth from those who don't want to hear truth, but from for those who want to hear truth, the parables make you go, What does that mean? It makes you dig in deeper. And so Jesus is priming the crowd for the gospel priming the crowd for the gospel. Don't listen to these false teachers who've been telling you that the way to avoid judgment is pay off your own sins now through your good works or just don't sin like us. Just be perfect. Just be self-righteous and you'll avoid judgment. And Jesus is telling this parable and saying you're on your way to the judge you know you're guilty settle up before you get there he doesn't tell them exactly how to settle up but he's getting them ready to understand first you need to understand though you are guilty and don't think you're going to negotiate with the judge on judgment day settle your accounts before you're dragged in to the judge praise god he's given us his son, to settle our accounts for us. Stop listening to the false teachers. Listen to the truth. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen. Father, thank you for the truth. Forgive us when we downplay doctrine. Also forgive us, though, Lord, when our sound doctrine doesn't lead us to love like Jesus. Lord, your word tells us that people will know we are your disciples by our love for one another. You have clearly taught that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Help us to know how to present the truth in a way that's winsome and humble. And yet, in our desire to keep our relationships intact, may we never compromise the truth. Lord, I pray that false teachers would repent and accept your word as truth. And use that giftedness you've given them as teachers to teach truth. And Lord, I pray that each one of us would be found faithful when you return. We are teaching the gospel with with clarity and love and with a sense of urgency. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen.